What do you see when you look at your city? What do you see when you look at your church? What do you see when you look at yourself? Do you see nothing but broken piles of junk and rubble? Because when God looks at you, he sees a future and a hope. The Bible tells the story of Nehemiah, a man whose heart broke when he saw the ruined walls of Jerusalem. But in that rubble, he also saw hope. He saw the tools to rebuild. It's time to see our city the way God sees it. It's time to see our churches the way God sees them. It's time to see ourselves the way God sees us. It's time to rebuild. Well, good morning. It's good to see you today. Or maybe it's good afternoon or good evening, wherever you might be uh, Wherever you might be watching. I want to welcome those of you who are watching uh, from the uh, here in the Long Point campus from the warehouse or the chapel or uh, online somewhere around the world or uh, one of our campuses uh, here in the, the southeast and the midwest and uh, out west. We're glad that you guys are along uh, today uh, to kind of track with us. Um, let me ask you a question I usually do before I begin to kind of get us on the same page. Uh, how many of you have ever worked real hard on something and you were proud of the progress that you made on it. You were proud of what you did. You know, it might have been a project or, you know, uh, just a hobby or something at work, whatever it happened to be. And an outside force comes in and, and in an unguarded moment wipes out all the gains that you've made. Have you ever had anything like that happen? I'll give you a couple of, couple of uh, uh, examples. Uh, a few years ago, uh, Debbie had, uh, we, we were going to go on a, on a picnic picnic and Debbie had cooked some, uh, uh, boy this is controversial, uh, some deviled eggs. For some of you they may be angel eggs, okay, but what we call them deviled eggs, okay. So anyway, that's what they were. And she cooked uh, two dozen of them, 24, put them together. She, she makes them great and she kind of laid them out, had them ready to go. And uh, the next morning uh, when we were ready to go on the picnic, I think it was a Saturday, um, unfortunately, uh, Josh and Lisa were living with us at the time. Not that, that wasn't the unfortunate part. It was right after they got married, they didn't have a house yet. And so they were living with us, and they had a dog named Wrigley, uh, which has since been regifted. okay? And, um, and, and in an unguarded moment, Wrigley got into the deviled eggs and, uh, and ate not only all 24 of them, but the but the uh, tinfoil that they were on, everything. I mean, it was just because Debbie looked around, there's nothing here. And uh, we found out later in another way that actually where those, where those had gone. But in an unguarded moment, in an unguarded moment, all of her work was destroyed, was gone. I thought of another one. Uh, this is more recent. We were celebrating a birthday party, which seems like that we do all the time. And I think it was uh, one of my daughter's girls, and she had either made or contracted this really, really nice uh, cake for uh, a birthday. And she brought it, I think, over to the house, and we were going to take it again on a picnic. That's where it's best for us to gather, less destructive than inside of a house. And somewhere between our house and the picnic, one of the older cousins had discovered this beautiful cake and thought, you know what, I'm going to help myself to some of this. And so when the reveal came to show how beautiful it was, 
there was nearly the quarter end of the cake was just gone. In an unguarded moment, all of her hard work was gone. Well, see, that, that, those are kind of funny stories, but um, they can be applied to every area of our lives. It can be your spiritual life where you make great progress. Um, it might be in a, in a habitual area that's kept you back or just in knowing God. You make some great progress. And then in an unguarded moment, in an unguarded moment, an outside force um, kind of destroys the work that you've done. It can be that way in your marriage or your business. In an unguarded moment, all that you've worked for, it seems like it's gone. So here's the question. How do you protect forward progress? How do you protect ground that you've taken? Well, with that in mind, we've been studying through the book of Nehemiah. I've really enjoyed this study. If any, I don't know if anybody else has, but I have. And we've been studying kind of verse by verse through Nehemiah. Nehemiah is this kind of ordinary guy with an ordinary job. Actually, it's a pretty extraordinary job. He's a wine taster uh, for the king. And God um, grips him one day with a purpose, uh, with, a, with a project, with a plan. Here's the will of God for your life. I want you to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, which have been destroyed for 140 years. And I want you to do this great work, which is going to uh, unify my people, and it's going to uh, encourage uh, the people that are demoralized, and they're going to have defense against outside attacks. And so uh, he begins to pray about the whole thing, and he plans, comes up with this incredible plan, and then he executes it. And uh, in Nehemiah chapter 6 and verse 15, it kind of gives the outcome of uh, his work. He's been at this for about a year from the time he heard the call of God until he comes to the conclusion of the building of the wall. And in Nehemiah 6, and if you have a Bible, you can follow along, or if you've got an outline sheet, or you can uh, take a look on the screen, I think the scriptures will be there. I'm just going to read a little bit about what happened. He said, so on October the 2nd, the wall was finished. Just 52 days after we had begun. I mean, 52 days to finish anything is incredible. This is literally a miracle, a miracle. They've built a wall around the city in 52 days. When our enemies and the surrounding nations heard about it, they were frightened and humiliated. They realized this work had been done with the help of our God. They were frightened and humiliated. Now, enemies had, all the way along, we've talked about various enemies. Basically, um, uh, they took the form of three guys, but there were more than three guys. There were enemies all around. Had been harassing them, trying to intimidate them, trying to scare them, trying to discourage them. And it said, Nehemiah, uh, stayed focused. We did a message about that. He didn't become distracted, kept his head down, followed the plan of God, and he did what other people thought were impossible. And when the impossible happened, everybody around said, it must be God. Just a little aside to that. Oftentimes in our lives, God will call you to do something that seems to be impossible. It might be in a personal area. It might be, you know, uh, uh, making a contribution to something that is really, really good. Uh, it may be as a part of a project, and you go, boy, this is big. People laugh at you. You know, they think you're crazy. But when you do something that's beyond your ability to accomplish, God will be glorified. God will be glorified. And if you're a uh, Christian very long, you're going to be challenged by situations just like that in your own life and in your own family. You may be in one right now, and you feel like you're, kind of over your head, hang on, keep your head down, keep from being distracted, 
and when the time comes, when when uh, the project is done, God will be glorified. Now, that would have been a time for Nehemiah to get a big head, wouldn't it? You know, ha, you laughed at me, look at this. But he doesn't do it. And it's important that he doesn't do it. Because the Bible says that God exalts who? The humble. He opposes the proud. I don't know about you, but I don't want the God of the universe to be opposing whatever I'm involved in. And so Nehemiah doesn't get a big head, he doesn't brag, he doesn't trash talk, he, he's a humble guy, and because he's a humble guy, God can use him not just for this project, but God can continue to use him in future projects. All right, so during those 52 days, it says, many letters went back and forth between Tobiah, who is his enemy, and the nobles of Judah, people inside the house. His enemy has a stronghold in the house, and it tells you how. It says, uh, for many in Judah had sworn allegiance to him because his father-in-law was Shechaniah, son of Aaron, and his son, Jehonian, or something like that, was married to the daughter of somebody else, okay? Basically what that's saying is that for political gain and to throw sand in the gears of what God was trying to do through Nehemiah, um, Tobiah... Had, had, had a stronghold inside the house. You know, it's one thing to have opposition from outside, but when it comes from inside, we talked about that a few weeks ago, that's the, that's the most devastating type of opposition you can have. And Tobiah has a stronghold. Now, does that sound like anybody else you know? Well, we'll talk about him in just a few minutes. So he's got an enemy inside the house. They kept telling me about Tobiah's good deeds, and then they told me, or they told him, Everything I said, that had to be demoralizing. Nehemiah knows Tobiah is not a good guy. And you've got all of these people inside the house, nobles inside the house, coming to Nehemiah and saying, have you heard about Tobiah? What a great guy he has. Maybe that's happened to you at work. You know, somebody that you know has ulterior motives or maybe they're cutting corners or whatever they're doing. And the people in the department are going, or the people in the school dorm or wherever you happen to be, are going, you, you know, they're just such a great person. and She's so wonderful, and you know she's not wonderful. What do you do? Do you trash them? That's not, not what Nehemiah does. That's not what Nehemiah does because he doesn't speak evil of, uh, of these guys at this particular point. He does when he confronts them, but he doesn't to other people. And uh, so, so anyway, so, so they've got that going on, and then they're also ratting him out on everything that he says. And Tobiah kept sending threatening letters to in, intimidate me, he says. But he got the job done. Now, here's, here's a principle. Just because Nehemiah got the job done doesn't mean that his enemies and his critics are going to disappear forever. In fact, this is a critical moment. Because unless Nehemiah takes a next step here, which we're going to read about in chapter 7, unless Nehemiah takes a next step, all of the gains... All of the forward progress, all of the good stuff that's happened in the last 52 days is liable to just go away in an unguarded moment, okay? Because he has an enemy. And the enemy doesn't just go away because that particular job is done. Now, there's a parallel. Tobiah is a type of an enemy that we all have. In fact, in uh, 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8, it says, Stay alert. Watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. You have an enemy. 
Uh, it's a spiritual enemy. When people do things against you, they're being used by the spiritual enemy. That's why Paul says our battle is not with flesh and blood, the people. We've got to look beyond the people. There is an enemy who has a strategy to take any ground that you've taken, who has a strategy to destroy you. He wants to devour you. He wants to devour your family. He wants to devour your business. He wants to devour your church, your small group. He wants to embarrass you and embarrass the God that you serve. And don't ever forget about that. We've got to be on guard. It says, he says, watch out, be on guard. You say, well, man, if it's the devil and, you know, I've watched the Exorcist movies, he's a bad dude, you know. Uh, maybe I ought to just give up. No, the next verse says, stand firm against him and be strong in your faith. You've got to stand firm and you've got to be strong. You've got to be smart. You've got to realize that any time you make forward progress in any area of your life, you have an enemy that wants to destroy you and wants to attack you. And so, and so you've got to learn from guys like Nehemiah. If you've got recently some ground that's been taken, then you need to think about how do I keep it? How do I sustain it? How do I build to last? So here's what we're going to do. We're going to study the first three verses of chapter 7 because it's just rich and full of what Nehemiah does to sustain the victory, to keep, to keep what he's taken in this 52 days. And uh, basically, we're just going to go verse by verse. There's three verses, and there's three things that Nehemiah does. And then what I'm going to do, since I like threes, I'm going to give you three practical things for each one of them. So there's going to be nine things that we're going to run through that are going to help you to sustain progress. Okay, does that make sense? All right, let's jump into it. How do you sustain a victory? Number one, the first thing that Nehemiah does is he puts God first. He chooses to put God first. Look at verse one of chapter seven. It says, after the wall was finished and I had set up the doors and the gates, the gatekeepers, the singers, and the Levites were appointed. It's important that th this list is important. Because what he's saying is he's saying, we built the wall. 52 days, we had a celebration. Yay, God, we built it. But you know what? The last things that we put in to protect ourselves was what? The doors on the gates. Because the gates are the vulnerable places. If the enemy's going to attack, he's going to attack at the gates. And so, and so we, we put the gates up, and the first thing we did is we stationed gatekeepers there. And after our security was sure... The next thing we did is we appointed Levites and singers. What's up with that? Who were the Levites and singers? They basically were the people that worked in the temple. They were the people that uh, conducted worship. They were the worship leaders. They were the pastors, the preachers. They were the people that conducted worship. And he said the first thing we did after we knew we were secure was not to build roads. We didn't even build schools, although schools are important and roads are important. We didn't even build our first Starbucks. Okay, and how many of you know that's extremely important? What we did is we established God as being a priority. We put God first. Now, why did he do that? Because God defends what he's responsible for, okay? When you put God first in an area of your life and you make him responsible for it, he defends it. And if he's not first, he doesn't have a responsibility. It's your responsibility to defend. And that's why we're stressed out, because we're trying to defend things that we have not honored God with or put God first in our life. And God promises to defend what he's responsible for. 
Not only that, but uh, God uh, doesn't do will, real well in a second place. God has to be first. And the reason that they were in the position that they were in at this particular time is because somewhere down the road, they quit putting God first. Everybody always starts with, if you go through the Old Testament, they start with a real dedication to God. They put him first. And at some point, their eyes got off on other things, material things, power, uh, sex. Those are the big three that were back then and still are today. And they, they kind of got off on that stuff, and suddenly God wasn't first place anymore, and ultimately the walls crum crumbled down. And, and it happened slowly. They didn't see it at first, but they looked around, and they lost everything. They lost everything because God has to be first. And Nehemiah knows he doesn't want that to happen again, and so he puts God first. But you know what? Here's, a, here's another truth is that whatever you put God first in your life, he blesses. He blesses. Uh, in fact, Jesus said it like this, Matthew 6, Seek first God's kingdom and what God wants. In other words, put God first. Then all of your other needs will be met as well. So if you have needs for relationship, put God first in those. If you have need for time, put God first in your time. If you have need for resources, put God first in your resources because if you do, Jesus said God blesses whatever we do when we put him first in our life. And I think that Nehemiah knows that principle that if he'd put God first, there's a good chance that they wouldn't end up in the same mess again in a few years. And so here's the question. How do we put God first in our own lives? How do we put God first in our own lives? I don't know about you, but I'm in a habit of putting me first. Is there anybody else that's as wretched and disgusting as me in this room? I mean, I'm the center of the universe. If you want to know whether you're balanced or not, just judge yourself by me because, because I think I'm the most balanced person in the earth. You do too. Don't look at me like that. You're, you're judging the political candidates by whether they're as balanced as you. You're judging your neighbors by whether they're as balanced as you because you're the center of your own little universe. I want what I want, when I want it, and how I want it. Now, I disguise it real well. But that's what I struggle with all the time. How do you break the habit of me first? How do you do that? You've got to develop new God-first habits. How do you know that habits are difficult to break and develop, especially at first? Anybody know that? Um, I recently uh, decided that I was going to start uh, some, uh, some new um, uh, eating and exercise habits. This morning I was at Starbucks and somebody asked me, have you lost weight? Several of you have asked me that over the years. And <laughs> normally I would think about my friend Billy Hornsby. Some of you remember Billy. Billy wrote a book called 101 Rules of Relationships. And I think rule number 73 was never ask a fat guy if he's lost weight because he hasn't. Okay? And, uh, you know, I'd always go, well, you know, and actually it was the clothes or whatever. But recently, um, I decided uh, that I was going to uh, lose some weight. Some friends dropped hints a little bit that that would be a good idea. But it didn't do anything for me until I felt some pain. How do you know that you usually don't change until you feel some pain? And in this particular time, I uh, uh, had to do a, a relatively formal event. And I, I only have one relatively, like, formal outfit. And it relatively didn't fit. And so... Coats, coats are okay because you can keep, you know, I mean, you can have them fit even this much and it's all right. 
but the pants I could not get into, and so I went over to a cheap store to get some new pants. And guys understand this. I went and I got my size, and I tried to put my size on. I couldn't even get the buttons passed here. And this is a crisis because you have a certain size that you won't go over. I mean, it doesn't matter. If you have to suck in, button it up, you're going to do it because you're not going over that size. And I was in an emergency. I had to have a pair of pants. Not only did I go over that size, I went two sizes over that size. It was one of the most humbling experiences. And so I decided I'm going to have to develop some new habits. And so here's what I did. I made a decision. I'm going to do it. I developed a plan. I decided, okay, how does this work? How much exercise? How much food? What do I got to do? And then the third thing I did, what really helped me, is I got uh, two of my friends to kind of be a board of directors for Greg. They're part of my small group. We meet regularly. And I told them, I said, here's what I want to do. Here's my goal. I know me. I, I want to break a habit, get some new habits, but I'm going to need some help. And so I enlisted them. And so once a week, I send them a report of how much exercise, how much weight I've lost, all this kind of thing. And they cheer me on. They encourage me. But also during the difficult times, uh, I think about them. I think about them when I, when I, when I, wanted, when I want, want to not do well. And uh, I'm 90 days into it. I decided I'm going to do it for at least three months. And it's becoming a habit. Now, you guys will all be able to watch and see how that goes since I fessed up to it. Well, I thought about that. And I thought, if I'm going to put God first in my life, if we're going to, and I'm going to teach you how to do this, you've got to develop God-first habits in order to get away from me first habits. And let me give you three of them. There's several of them. I can identify about eight, but I don't have time for that. Let me give you the three big ones, God first habits of putting God first. The first thing you do is you give God, you get in a habit of giving God the first part of every day. The first part of every day. Why? Because it, it says, God, you're more important than anything else in my life. You're more important than anything I'm going to do today. And not only that, it sets the tone for your, for your day. I've gotten in a habit of doing this. Just for an example, I want to read you um, the, the, the passage of Scripture that I read today as a part of my reading program and give you an example about how important that is. Today, part of my reading program was Psalms 103. I just want to read a little bit of it to you. It says this, let all that I am praise the Lord. With my whole heart, I will praise his holy name. Let all that I am praise the Lord. May I never forget the good things that he does for me. As I sat there and I read that, I thought, you know what? I haven't been remembering enough. I've been letting things cloud my mind and there's been some stress that's come as a result of that. Let me just stop and remember the good things that you've done. He forgives all my sins and he heals all my diseases. He redeems me from death and crowns me with love and tender mercies. He fills my life with many good things. My youth is renewed like eagles. The Lord gives righteousness and justice to all who are treated unfairly. He reveals the character to Moses and his deeds to the people of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and merciful. He's slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. He will not constantly accuse us or me nor remain angry forever. He does not punish us for all of our sins. When I was reading that, I circled the word all in my mind, and I thought, hey, I'm glad for that. You know, sometimes I, God's easier on me than I am. God certainly is easier on me than other people are or that I am on other people. That doesn't mean God's a pushover, but it means God loves me. 
He doesn't deal harshly with me as we deserve for his unfailing love towards those who fear him is as great as the heights of the heaven above the earth. He has removed all of our sins as far as from the east is from the west. The Lord is like a father to his children, tender and compassionate, on and on and on. I'd, I'd love to read the whole chapter. But how do you know that when I read that this morning, I was ready to face this day? Because my father had assured me how much he loved me and assured me how valuable I was to him. You know, when I didn't have a habit of putting God first, uh, giving him the very first part of every day, I didn't get that encouragement every day. A lot of days I felt like I was on my own, and it wasn't because God was distant. It's because I was distant from God. And so I want to challenge you to make a habit. Maybe you have a hard time with that. It's okay to admit that. Here's what you do. Make a decision. Get a plan. Get some friends to help hold you accountable. And then try it for 90 days and see how it works. First habit, give God the first part of every day. Here's a a God first habit. Give God the first day of every week. Give God the first day of every week. Make that a habit. Um, Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 25 says, And let us not neglect our meeting together. Apparently, in the New Testament church, a lot of them started really strong. And they set aside the first day of every week as the day that they would meet together. And they were doing it real faithfully and religiously. And as it kind of got to be, um, it wasn't so fresh and new, other things started to crowd it out. And they started maybe not meeting together with the church in the courts of the temple like they would on the first day of the week. Or or in their homes like they would uh, during the week in small groups. And he says, Don't neglect that, as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of God's return is drawing near. It's just really easy to get neglectful and get into a me-first habit. Maybe you're inconsistent in that area. Maybe it's a challenge for you. You know, uh, maybe it's an indication that God isn't first anymore, and if he's not first, then the walls... Will begin, to trub, uh, will begin to crumble and you'll be vulnerable uh, to some, some setbacks in your life. And so I'll challenge you, make a decision to put God first. Make a plan. Get your scheduler out. You know, I'm going to do it. I'm, I'm going to be at the weekend gatherings as often as I can. When I can't, I'm going to look when it's online and I'm going to go and I'm going to be a part of that. I'm going to renew my commitment to a meeting with a few friends, you know to encourage one another in a, in, a, in a small group. And then ask some friends to help make you accountable. Tell them, ask me the tough questions. When you don't see me regularly at where I've said I'm going to be, ask me why. Help me, uh, hold me accountable. And do that for 90 days and see if it doesn't change um, into a God-first habit. The third one is this. Give God the first part of every paycheck. This is where we start to get nosebleeds. Because this is the toughest part. Because materialism easily gets a grip on our, on our hearts. And this is a generosity principle. God wants you to put him first in your finances for several reasons. And the first one is to recognize that he is number one. And our, you know, uh, somebody said um, you can uh, give without loving, but you can't love without giving. How many of you would agree with that? Three of us agree with that. Okay. Christmas is coming up. You're going to give sometimes without loving. But you can't love without giving. I say I love God, but if I'm not giving to God, it's an indication that he's not first place in my life. And he wants us to be givers. Why? Because 
generosity breaks the grip of materialism. It's the only thing that does. It, um, and, and we are just gripped by materialism all around us. And when I give, it helps to break that grip. Besides that, generous people are just nicer to be around. How many of you would agree with that? How many of you would rather be around a generous person than a Scrooge? I would, especially if I work for him. I want to be around a generous person. And when we're generous, we become more like God, and uh, we become more attractive. It invites God's blessing on your finances. That's the incredible thing. God says, I want you to be generous, but it's not without blessing. It's not why I give, but it certainly is a benefit of giving that when I give, there are so many scriptures, I didn't even give you any of them in, the, in your outline sheet. But there are so many scriptures that promise blessing when we give to God generosity. And God uses your generosity. This is what's cool. God uses your generosity to bless the world around you. One of the ways that you're generous is by giving to this church, okay? There are, there are, there are many people in this church that give a tithe of their income to this church. There are others, a tithe being 10%. There are others that give some percentage. There are others that give at least something. And <laughs> We, we had somebody study this recently, and there's a whole group of people that don't give anything at all. And I'm going, man, you are missing out on the blessings of generosity. Just start wherever you are. Just get in the game somewhere and begin in small ways to be generous and let God build that. Because it, it allows us as a church to help transform communities like North Charleston and the Dream Center where crime rate's going down. Sam Lesky came and brought us a message on first Wednesday. This last first Wednesday, he said that crime rate's going down. The um, graduation rate is going up. People are being discipled and, and know Jesus better because of your giving. It allows us to help people who are underemployed during downturns like we've just gone through. It allows us to build schools in places like Sri Lanka in a war-torn area where the government said to one of our partners there, We've just ended the civil war. Why don't you come help us educate people? And because of your giving, because of your giving, we were able to go, we're going to build a school there. We're going to jump in and help build a school that will educate kids. Here's one that's really exciting. I'm not going to tell you much about it because we're going to talk about it in another time. But um, we, we told you a year ago about um, a uh, situation in Uganda where health care is really hard to, to uh, come by, especially mothers um, having babies, and the, the mortality rate is huge. And so we said, wouldn't it be cool if we partnered with some people? Uh, they have a hospital that's already running there. What if we paid for um, a uh, maternity ward? What if we paid for, we built the whole thing, just built a maternity ward where women can have access to good health care and children can be born in a clean environment? And you guys did, and we built it, and it's working. And babies are already... Babies are already, babies are already being born, and, and it's exciting, and it's just an outgrowth of generosity. Now, here's the truth. Generosity may be a challenge for you. It might be. You might have a hard time giving God anything or, or giving God as much as 10%, or, and some people I know are giving God 20 and 30 and 40% of their income because they've learned that, that um, it's, it's just, it's just a, a, it just transforms their life. Maybe you're having a challenge with that. Here's what you do is make a decision. I'm going to put God first. I'm going to make a decision to put God first. Get a plan. Get a plan. Say, you know what, every, every, um, every week or two weeks or whatever when I'm paid, uh, I'm just going to set aside a percentage. Maybe you can't do a full 10%. Set aside something. 
and uh, bring it and give it in the offering boxes during the worship time. Um, invite accountability. Get some people around you that you say, you know what, I want to put God first in this area. It's always been a challenge for me. Will you, will you hold me accountable for that? And then do it for 90 days. I challenge you to do it for 90 days and see if God doesn't bless it and see if you don't create a habit of generosity. I challenge you to do that, okay? Um, so, uh, so, so how do you sustain a victory? Number one, you put God first in various areas of your life. Here's the second thing that Nehemiah did, and I'm just barely going to touch on this one. There's so much in it. But um, you make sure you put the right people in charge. Okay? If you're going to sustain progress, you make sure you put the right people in charge. Have you ever worked for somebody who should never have been in charge? Anybody here don't point? Okay, Man, that will cripple progress when you put the wrong people. And Nehemiah puts the right people. He institutes good government. Verse 2, I have the responsibility, I gave the responsibility of governing Jerusalem to my brother Hananiah along with Hananiah, the commander of the fortress, for he is a faithful man who feared God more than most. So what Nehemiah does is he builds a team in order to sustain the victory. You know, individually, you can do great things, but if you don't have the right team, it will never, never last. And, and I'll challenge you, I already kind of gave a hint to it in my life. I've got teams of, teams of people in my life that help me do what I do. I have teams that help me to preach, teams that help me in my personal life, teams that help me in, in growing in areas uh, where I just, I'm, I'm not, you know, I, I'm challenged in. And so I, I usually get a team of people, and, and most often it's three people because there's something strong about triads. In fact, Nehemiah mentions three people uh, here. Uh, Ecclesiastes uh, 4.12 says, A person standing alone can be attacked and defeated, but two can stand back to back and conquer. Three are even better, for a triple-braided cord is not easily broken. And so here's what I want to suggest to you, is that you find two or three people in your life who can help you do what God's called you to do. Maybe in your personal life. It may be in your business. It might be in your marriage. Whatever it is that can help hold you accountable, that can help push you forward, who can give you ideas. So who do you look for? Um, let me give you three real quick ideas on that. We'll just kind of hit them because I, I, I see them in, in what Nehemiah does. Um, you, you need to, first of all, choose people with character. With character. Uh, Hananiah says, was a faithful man who feared God more than most. You need to have people around you who have, who have good character, who, who are uh, responsible people. Maybe they're a step ahead of you in whatever area that you need help in. Secondly, they need to be good at what they do. They need to be good at what they do. It's not enough just to have good character. They need to be skilled in an area that is helpful to you. Hananiah apparently was skilled at what he did. He was already the commander of the fortresses. Nehemiah looks at him and says, you're doing a good job there. I want you to help me to govern the city. And then the third thing is that you need, you need to like being around them. If you're going to invite people into your life, they might have good character. They might be skilled at what they do, but you just don't like being around them. Do you know anybody like that? Okay, don't point again. So what you need to do is you need to look for, and he appointed his brother. His brother apparently was a comfortable relationship for him. How do you know if you're comfortable with somebody? One quick test. When you see their name on caller ID, what do you do? Okay, answer to the question. All right. So here's what Nehemiah did, is he put God first, he put the right people in charge. The third thing he did, this is so crucial, is that he protected the vulnerable places. 
He protected the vulnerable places so that they could maintain their progress. He set a watch at the gates. Uh, Verse 3, I said to them, do not leave the gates open during the hottest part of the day. And even while the gatekeepers are on duty, have them shut and bar the doors. What's what's up with that? He does kind of a, a SWOT analysis. He figures out what are our strengths, what are our weaknesses, what are our opportunities, and what are our threats. Now, uh, the threats are attack by enemies, okay? So what are the weaknesses? The weaknesses are at the gates. Enemies aren't going to come over the walls. They're going to come in at the gates. So we better make sure we do the gates right. He says, during the hottest part of the day, we're just going to keep them locked because that's when everybody in this part of the country goes in the shade. And that's when an enemy would attack. He said, even in the best times, we're going to keep the doors locked and we're going to put guards at the gates so that nobody comes in or goes out who could do harm to us. Okay, just practical stuff. Because the threat is attack, the weakness is at the gate. I'll read the rest of the deal. He says, so appoint residents of Jerusalem uh, to act as guards, everyone on a regular watch. Some will serve as sentry posts and and, uh, some in front of their own houses because there were multiple gates. Now, I, I would just say this. I would challenge you to think about what are your strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. And I would suggest that the threats are attacks like we talked about at the very beginning where you've made progress and something, your enemy attacks you. And I would say that the weaknesses are the same places that Nehemiah's weaknesses were, and that's at the gates. That's The gates were the forms of communication. That's where information came in and went out. And that is where we get attacked most often. Let me give you three gates, and I want you to think about this. And which one of these three gates are where you're most liable to attack? And then secondly, what are you going to do about it? The first one is your ears, your ears. That's the first kind of communication center uh, are are your ears. And you need to put a watch at that gate. What do I mean by that? Maybe your weakness is hearing things that aren't necessarily true and then acting on them. Hearing things that aren't necessarily true and then acting on them. It might be about other people. You know, you, for whatever reason, you tend to, you listen to stories and you believe them. And then you act on them about other people and it's destructive in relationships. Or maybe it's about yourself. You, you hear things. That's uh, not voices. There is a voice inside of each one of us that flavors how we see life. And God has created you to be confident. God has created you uh, to, to move forward and not to move back. And you struggle with a lack of confidence because you hear an inner voice that says, you know what, I can't do that. I could never do that. What if I mess up? I always mess up when I do that. I'll make a fool of myself. I wonder what everybody else is thinking about me. And you know what, when, that, when those are the, the voices that you're listening to, it cripples your potential. God has great things for you. The enemy is attacking your gate. So what you do, if the problem is your ears, is you set a watch. Let me tell you how you set a watch. First of all, you pray. You can't do it by yourself. That's why you need Jesus. You pray and you ask God, God, help me in this particular, I want you to help me to protect this particular area. Then the second thing you do is you study. You find promises and descriptions from the word of God about who you really are. I've got three of them listed in your outline sheet. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. 
I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Ephesians 2.10, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. That's God's word to you. He has good works for you to do. And if you, and if you don't have confidence, and if you always feel like you're going to blow it or I can't do it or I'm not sufficient, and that's the voices you hear, then the enemy cripples your potential and you can't walk in what God wants you to walk in. And so that's the truth about you. Romans 8, 31, if God is for us, who can be against us? There's tons of these. Listen, use Google to your advantage. Here's what you Google. Who does God say that I am? Who does God say that I am? If that's a challenge for you, I want you to do it. And then you enlist a team, two or three people, that will listen to what comes out of your mouth because your mouth reflects what, what is in your heart, what your ears have heard, and what you're believing. And so you, you enlist your two or three people and say, listen to me, and when I say things that are not consistent with who God says that I am, I want you to confront me on that. If you're really serious about it, you'll do that, and if you're serious about it, you'll make progress. All right, let me give you the second one, is your mouth. That's your gate, your mouth. And with somebody who struggles with this is somebody that says things that aren't true or which are hurtful to other people, okay? You might call it just expressing yourself. Oh, I, I speak my mind. Well, some of us would rather you not speak your mind, okay? Because it hurts us. Do you know anybody like that? Maybe you have friends like that or maybe you're married to somebody like that. They just say things and they're hurtful or maybe they're just not true, Okay? And Facebook and Twitter just magnifies that. We're in a whole new age. I wish I could s spend some time, I will at some point, talking about that specifically. But it just, we, we say things we never would say to more people than we ever would dream to say in it. And it divides friends and friendships. And so if this is, listen, God hasn't designed you to do that. God has designed each one of us to be an encouragement. Look at Ephesians 4.29. Don't use foul or abusive language. That is abusive, and it's foul, okay? Don't use that kind of stuff. Let everything you say be good and helpful so that your words will be an encouragement to those who hear them. So when you begin to say something, you got to think, is this an encouragement? Is this good? Is this helpful? When you begin to write it down in a blog or on Facebook or on Twitter, is this good or is this helpful, okay? Because God has designed you to be an encouragement, all of us. So how do you, what do you do? You set a watch at the gate. How do you do that? You pray and ask God for his help. Um, you, you enlist two or three people to help you, okay? You, to, and, and you ask them, I want you to be a mirror because apparently I don't recognize it. And I'm not going to be defensive about this. I believe that you love me. You have good character. You're skilled in this area. I like being around you. I want you to... If I say stuff or I write stuff that's hurtful, I want you to confront me on that because I don't want that to be my reputation. I don't want the enemy to destroy what God is building because I don't have a, a watch at the gate. Does that make sense? Let me give you one more. You're going to love this one or maybe not. Your eyes, your eyes. For some of us, the gates or the, the weakness is, is looking at people and and putting our hands on people that we're not married to. Or maybe it's looking at things that we can't afford to buy, okay? Or maybe it's looking at porn on the Internet. Porn on the Internet is epidemic. Uh, you, I'm not saying anything you don't know. I was talking to a coach this week that said he was trying to give a pep talk to the guys on his team, and two or three guys had porn going on their iPhone. I mean, it's epidemic. It's on your iPhone. It's on your iPad. 
Um, you, you know, it's, 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 it's on the television. It's, it's everywhere. It's on the Internet, everywhere. You say, well, is it a, really a big deal? Somebody asked me that the other day. The answer is yes. It destroys intimacy in marriage. It doesn't help your marriage. It will ultimately destroy intimacy in your marriage because it decreases excitement and satisfaction. It's a never-ending spiral. Um, it devalues women. It warps thinking to where sex is unrelated to love. It desensitizes things like rape. It supports sex trafficking. You know, it's cool and hip these days, and I'm glad that it is, to be against sex trafficking. If you want to be against sex trafficking, quit using porn. Because porn is the thing that drives the sex trafficking industry. Um, it's an addiction. Uh, people that study this say it's, uh, in your own physical body, it's as bad as crack cocaine. It's tough to break. It brings about despair and shame and guilt. Some of you are even feeling that right now. As I talk about it, that's not my purpose. It's everywhere. God designed you to enjoy all of his gifts, including his gift of sex, in a healthy way. If this is an area, maybe it's with porn or maybe it's uh, with inappropriate, you know, uh, uh, communication with, with people that you're not married to or lusting or, or maybe it's in an area of spending, here's what you need to do. You need to pray and ask God to help you. And then you need to block access. I have two friends, godly men. One of them has set... Um, blocks on his iPhone, his iPad, his internet, to where it sends reports to his team of two or three for everywhere he goes. Uh, another one uh, has his, he and his wife sat down and went through all the television channels and blocked out everything but PG-13. And then she has the code to it. I said, you guys are godly men. That's pretty extreme. And both of them said the same thing to me, that the consequences are way too extreme to play with. Because that's an area where the enemy Destroys and he's destroying probably more people in this church in this area than anything else, than anything else. And so and so, um, block access and less friends to help. Is this an area where you're vulnerable? Let me conclude. Nehemiah knows that to sustain progress and to stay ahead, he's got to put God first. Let me ask you the question: Where do you need to put God first? Where do you need to put God first? In the areas maybe that we talked about, where do you need to put God first in your time, in your worship, in your money? What are you going to do about it? Nehemiah made sure that the right people were in charge. Have you enlisted a team to help you make progress? You won't make lasting progress until you've opened your life to a team of people, two or three, and said, I want you to help me. And then uh, Nehemiah posted a watch at the vulnerable places. If the enemy was going to attack you, which gate would he come through? And have you set a watch? Let's pray. Father, I thank you today for this wonderful group of people who desire to follow you. They're putting you first today, on this day, the first day of the week, and establishing a habit of doing that. Now, God, I ask that you would meet with us, that you would, uh, by your Holy Spirit, that you would make yourself known, felt, present here today as, as we make decisions um, uh, to set a watch, to put you first, to make sure that we've got the right people around us who will help us go where you want us to go. And God, in the next few minutes, I just pray that your kingdom would come and your will would be done. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen.